you know, there were a static element in the world. So we're talking about double binds and you know yeah. perception management of this type of research and stuff. But to go back to the man himself who uh, seeded this concept right. into the social sciences, Gregory Bateson, interesting guy to say the least. And yeah. he gets a decent amount of attention in the cybernetic brain. But I also pulled up some information that we'll get to in a second of uh, a little more tightly packed kind of uh, article of receipts about like the true extent of his involvement. But I think we already mentioned one thing that he was connected to, which was Allen Ginsberg doing LSD for the first time. I think it was. Yeah, it was for the first time at the like Palo Alto Veterans Hospital that Gregory Basin just so happened to work at for a while during that period. And I don't know if it, I don't know if he personally dosed uh, all of the leading lights we talked about, like Ken Kesey, Robert Hunter, right. et cetera. But like his friend, he was friends with the people who did, I think, including, uh, let me see here, a CIA contractor, Harold Abramson. So I think he, who was the first person to give Bateson LSD nineteen. 59, he also turned on Frank Fremont Smith, head of the Macy Foundation, really? which then passed CIA money. That This is in John Marx's wow. Search for the Manchurian Candidate. Okay. Uh, there was a whole thing, and uh, that also relates Ginsburg's like, weird feeling of being connected to Big Brother's brain when he was doing <laughs> the like the the uh, the flicker entrainment, yeah. you know, when they hooked him up to that when he did it at Stanford. And, you know, I guess... Uh, he had a bad trip, but then ended up like psyoping everybody anyways, maybe because he was a pedophile who's being blackmailed, but you know, um, Possible. <laughs> that's another thread to explore. But, uh, but yeah, Gregory Bateson is a guy that, uh, was very influential in like this, uh, cybernetic milieu, but he came from it very much. I, I mean, a lot of people did, but I feel like he came from a kind of psychiatric milieu and also took the cybernetic stuff in a more uh, specific psychiatric direction than uh, even the other people uh, like Gray Walter or Ross Ashby. I mean, though they did as well. But in terms of... I mean, it's of, weird, uh, honestly, because was he even a psychologist by training at all? I don't think so. He was just an anthropologist, I mean, right? Anthropologist, yeah. Is, is, I, I don't... Do you have this? Doesn't talk that much about his official training. Well, like you um, said last time, I guess you know, nomad. Right? Back then, there wasn't yeah. so much in the way of psychiatry. Like early on, you know, the field of psychology right. and psychiatry weren't super developed. So maybe that's why it was so easy to just like jump like into in between. You things. know, right. yeah, a theory of schizophrenia. From it's very interesting that like he started off with like schizogenesis. Mm -hmm. And like the, you know, how like fractures in society are created. And then he went into like schi schizophrenia, like, you know, right. which and, is and kind that, of the same, you know, principle. That, I, yeah. and, and I think what's interesting there too is like this parallel between the social and the individual, right? Mm -hmm. Which we see like in the early Macy's Day conferences about cybernetics. And you can sort of see as developing into the two strands of behavioral control, one being like the individual behavioral control that's all studied through MK Ultra and all the, you know, enhanced interrogation kind of stuff. And then uh, the more broader social control, which, uh, much, like, you know, broadly developed through the Internet 
and through networked computer systems that enable the kinds of communication necessary for those higher level orders of social control. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And so it's like interesting. You can kind of see that in a microcosm in Bateson's early work. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just to read a little bit here from the cybernetic brain to kind of, uh, I think he summarizes it, uh, quite well where, let me see it, you know, he, he contrasts kind of Ashby's Walter and Ashby's approach, which is maybe a little more, I don't know, tangentially psychiatric, even though they came out of that. And Bateson's, so he says that first, the object of Walter and Ashby cybernetics was the biological brain. They wanted to understand the material go of it and the go of existing psychiatric therapies. This was not the case with Bateson and R.D. Lang, who we'll get to. Neither of them was concerned with the biological brain. The referent of their work was something less well-defined, which I will refer to as the self. Their work remained cybernetic inasmuch as their conception of the self was again performative and adaptive, just like the cybernetic brain more narrowly conceived. Second, we will see below how this concern with the performative self provided further openings to the East, he capitalizes East, and accompanied an interest in strange performances and altered states more generally. One can, in fact, specify the connection between madness and spirituality more tightly in Lang and Bateson's work than was possible in the previous chapters. Third, I can mention in advance that while Walter and Ashby's psychiatric interests were not tied to any specific form of mental pathology, Bateson and Lang's work focused in particular on schizophrenia, and the, quote, visionary quality of schizophrenia was central to their extension of psychiatry in a spiritual direction. Yeah, so he kind of ties together basically the direction they went went in eventually sort of a collided headlong with or you could say like deeply presaged and influenced the quote-unquote 60s yeah um in a lot of ways that people would find quite recognizable you know right well Bateson also had pretty deep relationships with alan watts and um like some of the other people involved with esalen and things like that um an early backer of right. So he was kind of involved <laughs> in that whole uh, milieu and also Huxley, right? Huxley also, you know, involved with Esalen and, and the Macy conferences. Um, yep. Exactly. Right. And so he also like, you know, served somewhat of a role of like providing this theoretical bridge between the like Eastern philosophy and like Western science and psychiatry and views of the self, mm-hmm. which ended up being kind of an important foundation for the whole New Age movement, um, you know, that developed later in the 60s and 70s. So, I mean, I think besides his actual relationships there, you know, his uh, anthropological uh, studies of madness and schizophrenia and it, this view of madness as being sort of like, you know, an experiential journey that transforms the uh, person undergoing it provided this kind of bridge between the Eastern and Western views that ended up being kind of the backbone that would eventually develop into the new age movement. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It kind of reminds me of a concept that Bateson used, although I guess, you know, he didn't innovate it and it's not, again, uh, we want to clarify, you know, we were talking last time about the sort of sinister connotations or, uh, like the, the implications of control of, you know, the fixation with control, which I think is, you know, a, a, a relevant thing to discuss, but, 
you know, like we don't want to go like crazy just because someone mentions like their, you know, will or whatever, you know, for the way right. people say like, oh, we just flip out over like words. But uh, it is yeah. his concept of uh, abduction, which, you know, the way he means it is like the way people talk about induction or deduction, right? Like abduction right. is kind of like a a form of comparison between two apparently disparate fields, basically, okay, whereas right. induction or deduction is like kind of within one uh, disciplinary lineage maybe or one kind of like chain of phenomena like abduction is based on kind of like taking things from one area and putting it into another and I guess the most uh, famous maybe is uh, again you might know more this uh, but I think that the most famous way that he uses was to talk about the idea of evolution as being a mental process like that sort of the an allegory between like mental phenomena or me- like uh, thought processes or cognition and the process of evolution. And that yeah. basically like, you know, evolution has certain properties. The mind has certain properties. So therefore there's some kind of sympathy between them. Between right? them. And, and, yeah. and that those ideas, right, get fleshed out in a bunch of different ways. We can actually maybe come back to this when we talk about the Santa Fe Institute, because there's something in there in the, in that article that we read where, uh, you know, a lot of the corporate backers of the Santa Fe Institute were very convinced by this view that human beings and social systems and machines were now engaged in a, in a, you know, new set of evolutionary dynamics that were bringing human societies into, you know, new modes of being. Um, and that, you know, the, the Santa Fe Institute's, you know, complex uh, adaptive systems, uh, study could, you know, give them a science to try to understand that. Um, yes. but, but then at the same time, right, there's also this, um, science of memeology, which, you know, was named before the, you know, internet memes became a thing. Mm. There's this yes. book called virus of the mind that was released by like a, uh, one of the early founders of Microsoft in like the mid nineties. And it's basically the same idea. I mean, that, that ideas memes evolve and transmit socially, through a sort of Darwinian like mechanism. Yeah, that was which, Richard Dawkins whole thing too, right? Like he, you know, the, he kind of uh, like claimed that gene. he made that up. Yeah. But it's, he didn't really, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know too much about his specific claims there, but it wouldn't surprise me that he, uh, over ambitiously claims, uh, some, you know, importance in that field. But yeah, I mean, there is, Right. There's a lot of right, you can you can trace some of the early genealogy of those kinds of ideas to some of, of Bateson's work here, too. Yes. But uh, well, my larger point was that I think it, it's it's the the phrase abduction in a way actually is kind of telling, uh, even though, you know, he doesn't right. really necessarily uh, mean by it what like it might generally mean in like uh, common parlance. But it is interesting, like, there's kind of, like, a coloniality, like, to some of this, like, in a way, which, of which abduction has been, like, a very prominent feature, and it's interesting how, like, you know, it's kind of, like, this appropriation of really, like, sort of the, the skeleton or the sort of, uh, outline or kind of, like, a, a, a tenebrous sort of form of, uh, ideas from other cultures, mm-hmm. but they're kind of just, like, adapted to, they're, you know, they're instrumentalized. They're turned to whatever purposes. Um, well, it's, very, it's very similar preserved, you know. to yeah. Stuart Brand and Ken Kesey and like their, and like John Perry Barlow's obsession with Native Americans. It's like everyone's yes. obsessed with some kind of Indians, basically. Well, in this milieu. I mean, and, yeah, but also, in an instrumental that will come up way, again later like, with the yeah. SFI stuff, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. well, well, I mean, also, right. I mean, that's that's what anthropology 
is in many ways, yeah. right? I mean, it is it is a uh, yes. you know colonial project to understand the cultures of native peoples, mostly so that you can then you know destroy their culture and move them from whatever their you know forms of subsistence agriculture and their particular political economy and you know put them in onto you know as as wage laborers on a on a market. I don't know if either of you guys have listened to um, on Jimmy's podcast. He did an, an episode on indigenous history as parapolitics yes, with, with a guest called Lai Hall. Yeah. 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 Who, um, I mean, it was a very good episode. And I mean, they talk about this, how in Canada, right? Like on the West coast before the, you know, colonizers got there, the anthropologists came and mm-hmm. their role was to study the, you know, native groups on the, you know, the, British Columbia, Pacific Northwest, which eventually, you know, Canada ended up instituting all of these native policies that were essentially, you know, that were genocidal and that where they, you know, they move these people away from their traditional habitats, which remove them from their traditional modes of living and political economy and essentially force them to become laborers. And then all of these mining companies petitioned the Canadian government and lobbied the Canadian government to get Indian reservations set up right next to where all of their various, you know, mining uh, stuff was. And this is, you know, that's one example, but I mean, essentially the entire field of anthropology is that, I mean, I don't want to, you know, Yes. Uh, be no, too I've, insulting and dismissive. To, to I've always been, be listening, but, but uh, I mean, yeah, I, very colonial origins. I mean, yeah, I think that obviously like there's the whole like push to like decolonize anthropology, which is kind of like, I mean, there's another meaning of anthropology, which is like any kind of theory of what it means to be a human. So I guess in a way that but like sort of ethnology, really, like Mm -hmm. that's what I find. I don't think that the concept of anthropology is unsalvageable because, yeah, like it is kind of just like an idea about what the human is. But insofar as anthropology is equivalent to ethnology, it's Mm -hmm. like a very, very fraught discipline. Uh, I've voiced many times in the show, like my problem with. Yeah. uh, yeah. It's really Uh, funny that you say that because you know what Gregory Bateson's official specific job title was at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Palo Alto. No, what was it? He was an ethnologist. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Which is yeah. Like, well, kind of so weird. Me, I, like, why do you need an ethnologist at a veteran's hospital? At the VA. Right. That is interesting. In right. So let me read this, this little <laughs> section of uh, biographical information because there's, there's, oh, some yeah. I was, I was just about to say we brain. should. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's good. Right. Yeah. So Gregory Bateson was born in Grantchester near Cambridge in 1904, the son of eminent geneticist William Bateson, and died in San Francisco in 1980. Hmm. He studied at Cambridge, completed the natural sciences tripos in 1924 and the Anthropological Tripos in 1926, and was a research fellow at St. John's College from 1931 to 1937. He made his pre-war reputation as an anthropologist in Bali and New Guinea. And in 1940, he moved from Britain to the United States, where he began uh, working with the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner to the CIA from 1943 until 1945. Right, so it's like right there already, it's like he made his name as an anthropologist in like two parts of the world that Britain is like attempting to colonize or has, you know, colonial history in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then immediately after that gets a job for the OSS. You know, so you could imagine that maybe there was some aspect of his role as an anthropologist in Bali and New Guinea that was 
some degree of spying. Added a British know, intelligence aspect to it. Right. Because yes. I mean, often are serving those kinds of didn't roles. The British, didn't British intelligence play a large role in kind of helping set up, like just helpfully, you know, assisting the, the Americans in yeah. setting up the, uh, the OSS in the first place? And, you know, he was like kind of an influential heavy. He's one of these guys that like, he didn't just have like a job at the OSS. Like he was in charge of all this weird kind of anthropological psychiatric stuff. I think he worked a lot with uh, personality assessments of like screening candidates and stuff like right. that. And, Things and that, that was would a recur big, much later. And that was a big part of their goal, right? It's like they, especially with the fear of communism, it's like not, we, we need to be able to tell like, mm -hmm. are these people susceptible to communist ideas and we need markers for their personality so that we can profile them before we hire them. Right. I mean, it's like, that's their view from a security sense. So you can see how that, yeah, is, is, is important in the early days. And, and also, I mean, in, in the context of the British helping the Americans set up the OSS, I mean, I think it's something that would need more digging into, but it obviously like William Stevenson was someone who was like really involved in that. Mm -hmm. But it's like, I mean, it may be that like, Gregory Bateson moving from his, you know, anthropologist job in Bali and New Guinea and coming back and uh, to Britain and then being like, oh, yeah, go to the United States and go work for the OSS, like may have been part of that process. Like, here's a guy who we think has some information that will be useful to you in terms of like mapping the spaces of yeah. colonialism and domination and control that are going to be important for you as an as a, you know global imperial intelligence network oh, it for reminds sure. yeah, me honestly of ivan sanderson who was like british naval intelligence and then like was constantly hitting them up like for the rest of his career to give him like money to go investigate bigfoot and the yeti uh right. which he often did receive but yeah, yeah, uh, so did, there definitely was like an investment in anthropology as like a discipline uh for sure yeah uh, and the, the, right. the timing of moving is interesting 1940 is when you move to the u.s so that is right. after the start of world war ii britain's involved but the u.s but is the not US involved isn't. yet hmm. right you know but, but they then, probably I mean, people does, saw the writing on the wall maybe by 1940 that right well know. i mean it says right he moved in 1940 but then it says he worked for the oss from 1943 until 1945 so it's not clear to me what he did for what three years he was doing in that period yeah and there's not i mean in here this is not a you know a full detailed biography so i'm sure there are other sources we could look at that will have information about that but um just to continue on a little bit oh yeah in this uh, Bateson was married to american anthropologist margaret mead from 1936 until 1950 and together they were among the founding members of the macy cybernetic conferences held between 1946 and 1943 uh in the same period Bateson's interest took a psychiatric turn as he lectured at Langley Porter Clinic in San Francisco and then worked as an ethnologist at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Palo Alto, California. Uh, what follows seeks to trace out some of the main features of Bateson's psychiatric uh, work as it developed in a 10-year project, which formally began in 1952 with a two-year grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. Hey. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they were also, I mean, that, that was one of the biggest groups sponsoring any kind of this work at the time. But, I mean, that, right, 1952 is also after the Macy's conferences have been going on for a little while and have uh, kind of matured into their view of what cybernetics really was. And also, uh, I mean, 53 is the year that MK Ultra officially starts. You know what? The Korean War started in 50 or 51? 50, yeah. Um, 50, yeah. And so it, it stopped in 53. Right. And so that was a big 
impetus among the Western intelligence networks to try to um, figure out, you know, the whole concept of brainwashing. I mean, the Korean War and the Korean POWs coming back is what caused brainwashing to enter the, you know, popular lexicon. And And I think we've discussed before that it's my personal belief that that was mostly kind of like a sophisticated on top to both like cover the asses of like, why are so many of our captured soldiers saying that we're dropping germ warfare on the DPRK and like saying like getting just basically convinced that like America's bad and there must be an explanation for it. And then it was sort of used as a cover. Well, now we have to like, they must be doing something scary. So they even, I think probably psyoped people like within the national security state to be terrified of this like new possibility. You can even see the Manchurian candidate book and movie kind of like lending credence to this, like seeding support for it in the population. And then they were able to go off. But as we've covered, like covering people like George Estabrooks and shit like that, they were already people kind of tinkering around with this stuff in the West. And it's like, this is exactly kind of like cybernetic 9-11. Like they deeply wanted to have an excuse to embark on MK Ultra and do this stuff. And right. so the Korean War was able, you know, uh, I think I've mentioned before, I, I really have to find it, but it used to be on YouTube, but it's like a propaganda film made by probably some right-wing group but like narrated was, by yeah, Reagan exactly. and he's like oh, no. you know he's talking about how like the the brainwashing that our boys in Korea are going through yeah, like, did they get this. our number and even in yeah. his own propagandistic description of like Chinese North Korean communist brainwashing the techniques he describes are basically like political persuasion mixed with mild kind of psyoping like telling them instead of delivering their mail that they're getting from home being like oh nobody sent you a letter I guess they all just forgot about you because you're just like an imperialist puppet and like blah blah, blah. you know yeah. what I mean like yeah. and then it's, so they it's get what depressed Dobby and, did to Harry Potter uh, <laughs> 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 like that's the um, worst thing they did and then they give them political education classes and like they get treats basically if they like go to the Marxist education class and over time they're able to and and they're otherwise treated like okay so they basically get you know persuaded kind of uh, some of them to uh to go and maybe you know give anti-american statements but like even by reagan's own hysterical interpretation it's not like they were hooking people up to electrodes and giving them lsd and like you know insulin shock therapy and all the shit that we basically ended up doing from the early 50s onward and so yeah it's like it's Uh, all a bunch of bullshit but I found this great, you know, this David H. Price article, Gregory Bates and the OSS, which has some mm-hmm. amazing quotes from him okay, about yeah. like his work in the OSS and just like a little bit, basically everything that like we were speculating about, like is kind of borne out uh, here, interestingly. For access to the full length episode, subscribe to the Owl of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminal jihad.